Notre Dame de Paris by Victor Hugo. Book Six, Chapter Three. The Story of a Wheaten Cake. At the time of which this story treats, the cell in the Tour Roland was occupied. If the reader wished to know by whom, he has but to listen to the conversation of three worthy gossips, who, at the moment when we drew his attention to the rat hole, were walking directly that way, going from the Chatelet towards the Greve, along the water's edge. Two of these women were dressed like good citizens of Paris. Their fine white gorgets, their petticoats of striped linsey woolsey, red and blue, their white knitted stockings with colored clocks pulled well up over the leg, their square-toed shoes of tan-colored leather with black soles, and above all their headdress, a sort of tinsel horn overloaded with ribbons and lace, still worn by the women of Champagne and by the grenadiers of the Russian Imperial Guard, proclaiming that they belonged to that class of rich tradesfolk occupying the middle ground between what servants call a woman and what they call a lady. They wore neither rings nor gold crosses, and it was easy to see that this was not from poverty, but quite simply from fear of a fine. Their companion was attired in much the same style, but there was something in her appearance and manner which bespoke the country notary's wife. It was evident by the way in which her girdle was arranged high above her hips that she had not been in Paris long. Add to this a pleated gorget, knots of ribbon on her shoes, the fact that the stripes of her petticoat ran breadthwise and not lengthwise, and a thousand other enormities revolting to good taste. The first two walked with the gait peculiar to Parisian women showing Paris to their country friends. The countrywoman held by the hand a big boy who grasped in his hand a large cake. We regret that we must add that, owing to the severity of the season, his tongue did duty as a pocket-handkerchief. The child loitered, non passibus aequis, as Virgil has it, and stumbled constantly, for which his mother scolded him well. True, he paid far more attention to the cake than to the pavement. Undoubtedly, he had some grave reason for not biting it, the cake, for he contented himself with gazing affectionately at it. But his mother should have taken charge of the cake. It was cruel to make a tantalus of the chubby child. But the three damsels, for the term dame was then reserved for noble ladies, were all talking at once. "'Make haste, Demoiselle Mariette,' said the youngest of the three, who was also the biggest, to the countrywoman. "'I am mightily afraid we shall be too late. They told us at the Chatelet that he was to be taken directly to the pillory.' "'Nonsense! What do you mean, Demoiselle Oudard Mounier?' replied the other Parisian. "'He is to spend two hours in the pillory. We have plenty of time. Did you ever see anyone pilloried, my dear Mariette?' "'Yes,' said the countrywoman. "'At Rem.' "'Pooh! What's your pillory at Rem?' "'A miserable cage, where they turn nothing but peasants. A fine sight, truly.' "'Nothing but peasants,' said Mahiette. "'In the cloth market? At Rem? "'We've seen some very fine criminals there. "'People who had killed both father and mother. 
peasants indeed. What do you take us for, Gervaise? The country lady was certainly on the eve of losing her temper in defense of her pillory. Fortunately, the discreet demoiselle Oudard Mounier changed the subject in time. By the by, demoiselle Mahiette, what do you say to our Flemish ambassadors? Have you any as fine at Rem? I confess, answered Mahiette, that there is no place like Paris for seeing such Flemings as those. Did you see among the embassy that great ambassador who is a hosier? asked Oudard. Yes, responded Mahiette. He looks like a regular Saturn. And that fat one with the smooth face, added Gervais. And that little fellow with small eyes and red lids, as ragged and hairy as a head of thistle? Their horses were the finest sight, said Oudard, dressed out in the fashion of their country. Oh, my dear, interrupted the rustic Mahiette, assuming an air of superiority in her turn. What would you say if you had seen, in 1461, at the coronation at Rem, now eighteen years ago, the horses of the princes and of the king's escort? Housings and trappings of every description. Some of damask cloth, of fine cloth of gold, trimmed with sable, others of velvet trimmed with ermine's tails, others loaded down with goldsmith's work and great gold and silver bells and the money that it must have cost, and the lovely page-boys that rode on them. That does not alter the fact, dryly responded Damoiselle Oudard, that the Flemings have very fine horses, and that they had a splendid supper last night given them by the mayor at the city hall, where they were treated to sugar-plums, hippocras, spices, and other rarities. What are you talking about, neighbor? cried Gervais. It was at the Petit Bourbon, with the Cardinal, that the Flemings supped. Not at all, at the City Hall. Yes, indeed, at the Petit Bourbon. So surely was it at the City Hall, returned Oudard sharply, that Dr. Scourab made them a speech in Latin with which they seemed mightily pleased. It was my husband, who is one of the licensed copyists, who told me so. "'So surely was it at the Petit Bourbon,' replied Gervais, with no whit less of animation, "'that I can give you a list of what the cardinal's attorney treated them to. Twelve double quarts of hippocras, white, yellow, and red, twenty-four boxes of double-gilt Lyon marchpane, as many wax torches of two pounds each, and six half-casks of bone wine, red and white, the best to be found.' I hope that's decisive. I have it from my husband, who is captain of fifty men in the Commonalty Hall, and who was only this morning comparing the Flemish ambassadors with those sent by Prester John and the Emperor of Trebizond, who came from Mesopotamia to Paris during the reign of the last king, and who had rings in their ears. It is so true that they supped at the city hall, replied Oudard, but little moved by this display of eloquence that no one ever saw such an exhibition of meats and sugar-plums before. But I tell you that they were served by Lesec, one of the city guard, at the Petit Bourbon, and that's what misled you. At the city hall, I say. At the Petit Bourbon, my dear. For didn't they illuminate the word hope, which is written over the great entrance, with magical glasses? 
at the city hall, at the city hall, don't I tell you that the Houston Lavoir played the flute? I tell you no. I tell you yes, and I tell you no. The good fat Udard was making ready to reply, and the quarrel might have come to blows, if Mahiette had not suddenly exclaimed, Only see those people crowding together at the end of the bridge. There's something in the midst of them, at which they're all looking. Truly, said Gervaise, I do hear the sound of a tambourine. I verily believe it's that little Smeralda playing her tricks with her goat. Come quick, Mahiette, make haste to pull your boy along faster. You came here to see all the sights of Paris. Yesterday you saw the Flemings, today you must see the gypsy girl. The gypsy, said Mahiette, turning back abruptly and grasping her son's arm more firmly. Heaven preserve us! She might steal my child. Come, Eustache! And she set out running along the quay towards the greve until she had left the bridge far behind her. But the child, whom she dragged after her, stumbled and fell upon his knees. She stopped out of breath. Udard and Gervaise rejoined her. That gypsy girl steal your child, said Gervaise. What a strange idea! Mahiette shook her head with a pensive air. The queer part of it is, observed Udard, that the nun has the same opinion of the gypsies. What do you mean by the nun? said Mahiette. Why, said Udard, Sister Gudule. And who, returned Mahiette, is Sister Gudule? You must indeed be from Rem not to know that, replied Udard. She is the recluse of the rat hole. What? asked Mahiette. The poor woman to whom we are carrying this cake? Udard nodded. Exactly so. You will see her presently at her window on the greve. She feels just as you do about those gypsy vagabonds who go about drumming on the tambourine and telling people's fortunes. No one knows what gave her such a horror of gypsies. But you, Mahiette, why should you take to your heels in such haste at the mere sight of them? Oh, said Mahiette, clasping her child to her bosom, I could not bear to have the same thing happen to me that happened to Paquette la Chanfleury. Oh, do tell us the story, my dear Mahiette, said Gervaise, taking her arm. Gladly, answered Mahiette but you must indeed be from Paris not to know that. You must know, then, but we need not stand here to tell the tale, that Paquette La Chanfleury was a pretty girl of eighteen when I was one, too. That is to say, some eighteen years ago, and it is her own fault if she is not now, like me, a happy, hale, and hearty mother of six-and-thirty, with a husband and a son. However, from the time she was fourteen, it was too late. She was the daughter of Guy Berteau, minstrel to the boats at Rheims, the same who played before King Charles the Seventh at his coronation, when he sailed down the river Velle from Sillery to Muison, and more by token, the maid of Orléans was in the boat with him. Her old father died when Paquette was still a mere child. Then she had no one but her mother, a sister to Pradon, the master brazier and coppersmith at Paris, in the Rue Parin-Garlin, who died last year. You see that she came of an honest family. 
The mother was a good, simple woman, unfortunately, and taught Paquette nothing but a little fringe-making and toy-making, which did not keep the child from growing very tall and remaining very poor. The two lived at Rem, on the water's edge, in the Rue Folpen. Note this. I think this was what brought ill luck to Paquette. In 61, the year of the coronation of our King Louis XI, may heaven preserve him, Paquette was so merry and so pretty that everyone knew her as Chantefleury. Song Blossom Poor girl, she had lovely teeth and she liked to laugh so that she might show them. Now a girl who likes to laugh is on the high road to weep. Fine teeth spoil fine eyes. Such was Chantefleury. She and her mother had hard work to earn a living. They were greatly reduced after the father's death. Their fringe-making did not bring them in more than six farthings a week, which doesn't make quite two pence. Where was the time when Father Guiberteau earned twelve Paris pence at a single coronation for a single song? One winter, it was that same year of sixty-one, when the two women had not a stick of firewood and it was bitterly cold. The cold gave Chantefleury such a fine color that the men called her Paquette. Some called her Paquerette, Daisy. And she went to the bad. Eustache, don't let me see you nibble that cake. We soon saw that she was ruined when she came to church one fine Sunday with a gold cross on her neck. At fourteen years of age, think of that. First, it was the young Vicomte de Cormontreuil, whose castle is about three-quarters of a league away from Rem. Then Monsieur Henri de Triancourt, the king's equerry. Then something lower. Quillard de Bolin, sergeant-at-arms. Then, still lower, Guéry Aubergeon, the king's carver. Then Massé de Frépoux, the dauphin's barber. Then Thévenin le Moine, the king's cook. Then, still descending to older and meaner men, she fell into the hands of Guillaume Racine, viol-player, and of Thierry de Mer, the lantern-maker. Then, poor Chantefleury, she became common property. She had come to the last copper of her gold piece. How shall I tell you, ladies? At the time of the coronation, in that same year, sixty-one, it was she who made the king of Ribald's bed, that self-same year. Mahiette sighed and wiped a tear from her cheek. No very uncommon story, said Gervaise, and I don't see that it has anything to do with gypsies or with children. Patience, replied Mahiette. We shall soon come to the child. In sixty-six, sixteen years ago this very month, on St. Paula's Day, Paquette gave birth to a little girl. Poor thing! Great was her joy. She had long wished for a child. Her mother, good woman, who never knew how to do anything but shut her eyes to her daughter's faults, her mother was dead. Paquette had no one left to love, no one to love her. Five years had passed since her fall, and Chantefleury was but a miserable creature. She was alone, alone in the world, pointed at, hooted after in the street, 
beaten by the police, mocked by little ragged boys. And then she was now twenty years old, and twenty is old age to such women. Vice had ceased to bring her in much more than her fringe-making used to do. Every fresh wrinkle took away another coin. Winter was once more a hard season for her. Wood was again scarce upon her hearth, and bread in her cupboard. She could no longer work, for when she took to a life of pleasure, she learned to be lazy, and she suffered far more than before, because in learning to be lazy, she became accustomed to pleasure. At least, that's the way the priest of Saint-Rémy explains it to us, that such women feel cold and hunger more than other poor folks do when they are old. Yes, remarked Gervaise, but the gypsies? One moment, Gervaise, said Udard, whose attention was less impatient. What would there be left for the end if everything came at the beginning? Go on, Mahiette, please. Poor Chantefleury. Mahiette continued. So she was very wretched, very unhappy, and her tears wore deep furrows in her cheeks. But in her shame, her disgrace, and her misery, it seemed to her that she should feel less ashamed, less disgraced, and less miserable if she had something to love, or someone to love her. It must be a child, for only a child could be innocent enough for that. She recognized this after trying to love a thief, the only man who would have anything to say to her. But after a little, she saw that even the thief despised her. Women of that sort must have a lover or a child to fill up their hearts. Otherwise, they are very unhappy. As she could not have a lover, she gave herself up to longing for a child. And as she had never given over being pious, she prayed night and day that the good God would give her one. The good God had pity on her and gave her a little girl. I cannot describe to you her delight. She covered it with a perfect rain of tears, kisses, and caresses. She nursed her child herself, made swaddling clothes for it of her own coverlet, the only one she had on her bed, and no longer felt cold or hungry. She grew handsome again. An old maid makes a young mother. She took to her former trade. Her old friends came back to see her, and she readily found customers for her wares, and with the price of all these iniquities, she bought baby linen, caps, and bibs, lace gowns, and little satin bonnets, without ever thinking of buying herself another coverlet. Master Eustache, didn't I tell you not to eat that cake? It is certain that little Agnès, that was the child's name, her given name, for as to a surname, Chantefleury had long since ceased to have one. It is certain that the little thing was more tricked out with ribbons and embroidery than a dauphiness from Dauphiny. Among other things, she had a pair of tiny shoes, the like of which even King Louis XI himself surely never had. Her mother sewed and embroidered them herself. She put all the dainty arts of her fringe-making into them, and as many intricate stitches as would make a gown for the Holy Virgin. They were the two sweetest little pink shoes imaginable. They were no longer than my thumb, 
and you must have seen the child's tiny feet slip out of them, or you would never have believed that they could have gone in. To be sure, those little feet were so small, so pink, and so pretty, pinker than the satin of the shoes. When you have children of your own, Udard, you will know that there is nothing prettier than those little feet and hands. I ask nothing better, said Udard, sighing, but I must wait the good pleasure of Master André Mounier. Besides, resumed Mahiette, Paquette's child had not merely pretty feet. I saw her when she was only four months old. She was a perfect love. Her eyes were bigger than her mouth, and she had the finest black hair, which curled already. She would have made a splendid brunette if she had lived to be sixteen. Her mother became more and more crazy about her every day. She fondled her, kissed her, tickled her, washed her, decked her out, almost ate her up. She lost her head over her. She thanked God for her. Her pretty little pink feet, particularly, were an endless wonder, the cause of a perfect delirium of joy. Her lips were forever pressed to them. She could never cease admiring their smallness. She would put them into the tiny shoes, take them out again, admire them, wonder at them, hold them up to the light, pity them when they tried to walk upon the bed, and would gladly have spent her life on her knees, putting the shoes on and off those feet, as if they had been those of an infant Jesus. "'A very pretty story,' said Gervaise in a low voice. "'But what has all this to do with gypsies?' "'This,' replied Mahiette. "'There came one day to Rem some very queer-looking men on horseback. "'They were beggars and vagrants roaming about the country "'under the lead of their duke and their counts. "'They were swarthy. "'All had curly hair and silver rings in their ears.' The women were even uglier than the men. Their faces were blacker and always uncovered. They wore shabby blouses with an old bit of cloth woven of cords tied over their shoulders, and their hair hung down like a horse's tail. The children wallowing under their feet would have frightened a monkey, a band of outlaws. They all came in a direct line from Lower Egypt to Rem by way of Poland. People said that the Pope had confessed them and ordered them, by way of penance, to travel through the world for seven years in succession, without ever sleeping in beds. So they called themselves penitents, and smelt horribly. It seems that they were once Saracens, so they must have believed in Jupiter. And they demanded ten tours pounds from every crozered and mitred archbishop, bishop, and abbot. It was a papal bull that gave them this right. They came to Rem to tell fortunes in the name of the King of Algiers and the Emperor of Germany. You may imagine that this was quite enough reason for forbidding them to enter the town. So the whole band encamped near the Port de Bren with a good grace, on that hill where there is a mill, close by the old chalk pits. And everyone in Rem made haste to visit them. They looked into your hand and told you most marvelous things. They were quite capable of predicting to Judas that he should be Pope. 
and yet there were evil reports of their having stolen children, cut purses, and eaten human flesh. Wise folks said to the simple, Keep away from them, and then went themselves in secret. It was a perfect rage. The fact is, they said things that would have amazed a cardinal. Mothers boasted loudly of their children, after the gypsies had read all sorts of miracles written in their hands in Turkish and in heathen tongues. One had an emperor for her son, another a pope, and another a captain. Poor Chantefleury was seized with curiosity. She longed to know what her child would be, and whether her pretty little Agnès would not one day be Empress of Armenia, or something of that sort. So she carried her to the gypsies, and the gypsies admired the child, caressed her, and kissed her with their black mouths, and wondered at her little hand, alas, to the great delight of her mother. They were particularly charmed with her pretty feet and pretty shoes. The child was not a year old then. She already lisped a few words, laughed at her mother like a little madcap, was round and fat, and had a thousand enchanting little tricks like those of the angels in paradise. She was sorely afraid of the gypsy women, and cried. But her mother kissed her the harder, and went away charmed with the good luck which the fortune-tellers had promised her on yes. She was to be beautiful, virtuous, and a queen. She therefore returned to her garret in the Rue Folpen, quite proud of carrying a queen in her arms. Next day she took advantage of a moment while the child was asleep on her bed, for she always had it sleep in her own bed, softly left the door ajar, and ran out to tell a neighbor in the Rue de la Seychesserie that her daughter Agnès would one day have the King of England and the Duke of Ethiopia to wait upon her at table, and a hundred other surprising things. On her return, hearing no sound as she climbed the stairs, she said to herself, Good, baby is still asleep. She found the door much wider open than she had left it, but she went in, poor mother, and ran to the bed. The child was gone. The place was empty. There was nothing left of the child but one of her pretty little shoes. She rushed from the room, flew down the stairs, and began to beat the walls with her head, crying, "'My child! My child! Where is my child? Who has taken away my child?' The street was deserted. The house stood alone. No one could give her any information. She went through the town, searched every street, ran up and down all day long, mad, distracted, terrible, staring in at doors and windows like a wild beast that has lost its young. She was breathless, disheveled, fearful to look upon, and there was a fire in her eyes which dried her tears. She stopped the passers-by and cried, my daughter, my daughter, my pretty little daughter. If anyone will give me back my daughter, I will be his servant, the servant of his dog, and he shall devour my heart if he will. She met the priest of Saint-Rémy and said to him, I will dig the ground with my nails. Only give me back my child. It was heart-rending, Udard, and I saw a very hard-hearted man, 
Master Ponce Lacave, the attorney, weep. Ah, poor mother! When night came, she went home. During her absence, a neighbor had seen two gypsy women go slyly upstairs with a bundle in their arms, then shut the door again and hurry away. After they had gone, a child's cries were heard, coming from Paquette's room. The mother laughed wildly, flew over the stairs as if she had wings, burst open her door, and went in. A frightful thing had happened, Udard. Instead of her lovely little Agnès, so rosy and so fresh, who was a gift from the good God, there lay a hideous little monster, blind, lame, deformed, squalling, and crawling about the brick floor. She hid her eyes in horror. Oh, she exclaimed, can the witches have changed my daughter into this horrible beast? The little clubfoot was hastily removed. He would have driven her mad. He was the monstrous offspring of some gypsy woman given over to the devil. He seemed to be about four years old, and spoke a language which was no human tongue. Such words were quite impossible. Chantefleury flung herself upon the little shoe, all that was left her of all that she had loved. She lay there so long, motionless, silent, apparently not breathing, that the neighbors thought she must be dead. Suddenly she trembled from head to foot, covered her precious relic with frantic kisses, and burst into sobs as if her heart were broken. I assure you that we all wept with her. She said, Oh, my little girl, my pretty little girl, where are you? And that would have wrung your hearts. I cry now when I think of it. Our children, you see, are the very marrow of our bones. My poor Eustache, you are so handsome. If you only knew what a darling he is. Yesterday he said to me, I mean to be one of the city guard I do. Oh, my Eustache, if I were to lose you. Chantefleury got up all at once and began to run about Rem, shouting, To the gypsy camp! To the gypsy camp! Guard, burn the witches! The gypsies were gone. It was night. No one could follow them. Next day, two leagues away from Rem, on a heath between Gueux and Tilois, were found the remains of a great fire, some ribbons which had belonged to Paquette's child, drops of blood, and some goat's dung. The night just passed happened to be a Saturday night. No one doubted any longer that the gypsies had kept their Sabbath on that heath, and that they had devoured the child in company with Beelzebub, as the Mohammedans do. When Chanfleury heard these horrible things, she did not shed a tear. She moved her lips as if to speak, but could not. Next day, her hair was gray. On the following day, she had disappeared. A terrible story indeed, said Udard, and one that would make a Burgundian weep. I am no longer surprised, added Gervais, that the fear of the gypsies haunts you so. And you had all the more reason, continued Udard, to run away with your Eustache just now, because these are also Polish gypsies. Not at all, said Gervaise. They say they came from Spain and Catalonia. 
Catalonia? That may be, replied Udard. Polonia, Catalonia, Valonia, those places are all one to me. I always mix them up. There's one thing sure. They are gypsies. And their teeth are certainly long enough to eat little children. And I should not be a bit surprised if Smeralda ate a little too, for all her dainty airs. Her white goat plays too many clever tricks to be all right. Mahiette walked on in silence. She was absorbed in that sort of reverie which seems to be the continuation of a painful story, and which does not cease until it has imparted its own emotion, throb by throb, to the innermost fibers of the heart. Gervaise, however, addressed her. And did no one ever know what became of Chantefleury? Mahiette made no answer. Gervaise repeated the question, shaking her arm and calling her by name as she did so. Mahiette seemed to wake from her dream. What became of Chantefleury? she said, mechanically repeating the words whose sound was still fresh in her ear. Then, making an effort to fix her attention upon the meaning of the words, she said quickly, Oh, no one ever knew. She added, after a pause, Some said they saw her leave at Rheims at dusk by the Porte Flechambeau, others at daybreak by the old Porte Basset. A poor man found her gold cross hanging to the stone cross in the fairgrounds. It was that trinket which caused her ruin in sixty-one. It was a gift from the handsome Vicomte de Cormontreuil, her first lover. Paquette never would part with it, however poor she might be. She clung to it like her own life. So when this cross was found, we all thought she was dead. Still, there were people at Cabaret Les Votes who said they saw her pass by on the road to Paris, walking barefoot over the stones. But in that case, she must have left town by the Porte de Velle, and all these stories don't agree. Or, rather, I believe she did actually leave by the Porte de Velle, but that she left this world. I don't understand you, said Gervaise. The Velle, repeated Mayette with a melancholy smile, is the river. Poor Chantefleury, said Oudard with a shudder. Drowned? Drowned, returned Mahiette. And who could have told good father Guibertot, when he floated down the river beneath the Pont de Tinqueux, singing in his boat, that his dear little Paquette would one day pass under that same bridge, but without boat or song? And the little shoe? asked Gervaise. It disappeared with the mother replied Mahiette. Poor little shoe, said Udard. Udard, a fat and tender-hearted woman, would have been quite content to sigh in company with Mahiette. But Gervaise, who was more curious, had not come to the end of her questions. And the monster? she suddenly said to Mahiette. What monster? asked the latter. The little gypsy monster left by the witches in Chantefleury's room in exchange for her daughter. What did you do with it? I really hope you drowned it, too. Not a bit of it, replied Mahiette. What? You burned it, then? After all, that was better. A sorcerer's child. Not that, either, Gervaise. 
My lord the archbishop took an interest in the gypsy child. He exorcised it, blessed it, carefully took the devil out of the boy's body, and sent him to Paris to be exposed upon the wooden bed at Notre Dame as a foundling. These bishops, grumbled Gervaise, never do anything like other people, just because they are so learned. Just think, Udard, of putting the devil among the foundlings. For that little monster is sure to have been the devil. Well, Mahiette, what did they do with him in Paris? I'm sure no charitable person would take him. I don't know, replied the native of Rem. It was just at that very time that my husband bought the clerk's office at Beirut, two leagues away from town, and we thought no more about the matter. Particularly, as near Beirut, there are the two hills of Cernay, which quite hide the spires of the Rem Cathedral. While talking thus, the three worthy women had reached the Place de Greve. In their preoccupation, they had passed the public breviary of the Tour Roland without stopping, and were proceeding mechanically towards the pillory, around which the crowd increased momentarily. Probably the sight which at this instant attracted every eye would have made them completely forget the rat-hole, and the visit which they meant to pay, if the sturdy six-year-old Eustache, whom Mahiette led by the hand, had not suddenly reminded them of it, by saying, as if some instinct warned him that the rat-hole lay behind him, "'Mother, may I eat the cake now?' Had Eustache been more crafty, that is to say, less greedy, he would have waited still longer, and would not have risked the timid question, "'Mother, may I eat the cake now?' until they were safe at home again, at Master André Meunier's house, in the university, in the Rue Madame La Valence, when both branches of the Seine and the five bridges of the city would have been between the rat-hole and the cake. This same question, a very rash one at the time that Eustache asked it, roused Mahiette's attention. "'By the way,' she exclaimed, "'we are forgetting the recluse.' Show me your rat-hole, that I may carry her my cake. Directly, said Udard, it's a true charity. This was not at all to Eustache's liking. Oh, my cake, my cake, he whined, hunching up first one shoulder and then the other, always a sign of extreme displeasure in such cases. The three women retraced their steps, and as they approached the Tour Roland, Udard said to the other two, "'It will never do for all three of us to peep in at the hole at once, lest we should frighten the sachet. You two must pretend to be reading the Lord's Prayer in the breviary, while I put my nose in at the window. She knows me slightly. I'll tell you when to come.' She went to the window alone. As soon as she looked in, profound pity was expressed in every feature." and her bright, frank face changed color as quickly as if it had passed from sunlight into moonlight. Her eyes grew moist, her mouth quivered as if she were about to weep. A moment later she put her finger to her lips and beckoned to Mahiette. Mahiette silently joined her, on tiptoe, as if by the bedside of a dying person. It was indeed a sad sight which lay before the two women— as they gazed without moving or breathing through the grated window of the rat-hole. The cell was small, wider than it was long, with a vaulted roof, 
and seen from within looked like the inside of an exaggerated bishop's mitre. On the bare stone floor, in a corner, sat, or rather crouched, a woman. Her chin rested on her knees, which her crossed arms pressed closely against her breast. Bent double in this manner, clad in brown sackcloth, which covered her loosely from head to foot, her long gray locks drawn forward and falling over her face, down her legs to her feet. She seemed at first sight some strange shape outlined against the dark background of the cell, a sort of blackish triangle, which the ray of light entering at the window divided into two distinct bands of light and shadow. She looked like one of those specters, half darkness and half light, which we see in dreams, and in the extraordinary work of Goya, pale, motionless, forbidding, cowering upon a tomb or clinging to the grating of a dungeon. It was neither man nor woman, nor living being, nor any definite form. It was a figure, a sort of vision in which the real and the imaginary were blended like twilight and daylight. Beneath her disheveled hair, which fell to the ground, the outlines of a stern and emaciated profile were barely visible. The tip of one bare foot just peeped from the hem of her garment, seeming to be curled up on the hard, cold floor. The little of human form which could be dimly seen beneath that mourning garb made the beholder shudder. This figure, which seemed rooted to the ground, appeared to have neither motion, thought, nor breath. In that thin sackcloth, in January, lying half-naked on a granite floor, without fire, in the darkness of a dungeon, whose slanting window never admitted the sun, only the icy blast, she did not seem to suffer, or even to feel. She seemed to have been turned to stone like her cell, to ice like the season. Her hands were clasped, her eyes were fixed. At the first glance she seemed a specter, at the second a statue. And yet, at intervals, her blue lips were parted by a breath and trembled. But they seemed as dead and as destitute of will as leaves blowing in the wind. Yet her dull eyes gazed with an ineffable expression, a deep, mournful, serious, perpetually fixed expression on a corner of the cell hidden from those outside. Her look seemed to connect all the somber thoughts of her distressed soul with some mysterious object. Such was the creature who was called the recluse from her habitation and Sachette from her dress. The three women, for Gervaise had joined Mahiette and Oudard, peered through the window. Their heads cut off the faint light which entered the dungeon, but the wretched inmate seemed unconscious of her loss and paid no attention to them. "'Don't disturb her,' said Udard in low tones. "'She is in one of her ecstatic fits. She is praying.' But Mahiette still gazed with ever-increasing anxiety at the wan, wrinkled face and those disheveled locks, and her eyes filled with tears." How strange that would be, she muttered. 
she put her head through the iron bars, and at last contrived to get a glimpse of the corner upon which the unhappy woman's eyes were forever riveted. When she withdrew her head from the window, her face was bathed in tears. "'What is that woman's name?' she asked Udard. Udard answered, "'We call her Sister Gudule.' "'And I,' returned Mahiette, "'I call her Paquette Chantefleury.' Then, putting her finger to her lip, she signed to the amazed Udard to put her head through the aperture and look. Udard looked and saw in the corner upon which the recluse's eye was fixed in such sad ecstasy, a tiny pink satin shoe, embroidered with gold and silver spangles. Gervaise looked in after Udard, and then the three women began to weep at the sight of that miserable mother. However, neither their looks nor their tears disturbed the recluse. Her hands were still clasped, her lips dumb, her eyes set. And to those who knew her story, it was heartrending to see her sit and gaze at that little shoe. The three had not yet breathed a word. They dared not speak, even in a whisper. This profound silence, this great grief, this entire oblivion of all but one thing, affected them like the high altar at Easter or at Christmastide. They were silent, absorbed, ready to fall upon their knees. They felt as if they had just gone into church on Holy Saturday and heard the tenebrae. At last Gervaise, the most curious and consequently the least sensitive of the three, made an attempt to draw the recluse into conversation. Sister, Sister Gudule. She repeated the call three times, raising her voice each time. The recluse did not stir. There was not a word, not a look, not a sign of life. Udard, in her turn, in a gentler and more affectionate tone, said, Sister, Holy Sister Gudule. The same silence, the same absolute repose as before. "'What a strange woman!' cried Gervais. "'I don't believe she would mind a cannonade.' "'Perhaps she's deaf,' said Udard. "'Maybe blind,' added Gervais. "'Perhaps dead,' said Mahiette. "'Certainly, if the soul had not already quitted "'that inert, torpid, lethargic body, "'it had at least withdrawn into it "'and concealed itself in depths "'to which the perception of the external organs did not penetrate. "'We shall have to leave the cake on the window-sill, said Udard. "'But then some boy will steal it. "'How can we rouse her?' Eustache, who had thus far been absorbed in a little wagon drawn by a big dog, which was just passing, suddenly noticed that his three companions were looking at something through the window, and seized by curiosity in his turn, he scrambled upon a post, stood on tiptoe, and put his fat, rosy face to the opening, shouting, "'Mother, let me see too!' At the sound of this childish voice, clear, fresh, and ringing, the recluse trembled. She turned her head with the abrupt, quick motion of a steel spring. Her long, thin hands brushed the hair from her face, 
and she fixed her astonished, unhappy, despairing eyes upon the child. The look was like a flash of lightning. "'Oh, my God!' she instantly exclaimed, hiding her head upon her knees, and it seemed as if her hoarse voice tore her chest. "'At least do not show me those of others.' "'Good morning, madame,' said the child gravely. But the shock had, as it were, aroused the recluse. A long shudder ran through her entire frame from head to foot. Her teeth chattered. She half raised her head and said, as she pressed her elbow to her sides and took her feet in her hands as if to warm them, "'Oh, how bitterly cold!' "'Poor woman,' said Udard pitifully. "'Would you like a little fire?' She shook her head in token of refusal. "'Well,' added Udard, offering her a bottle, "'here is some hippocras which will warm you. Drink.' She again shook her head, looked steadily at Udard, and answered, "'Water.' Udard insisted, "'No, sister, water is no fit drink for January. You must drink a little hippocras.' and eat this wheaten cake which we have made for you. She put aside the cake which Mahiette offered her, and said, Some black bread. Come, said Gervaise, feeling a charitable impulse in her turn, and unfastening her woolen mantle. Here is a covering somewhat warmer than yours. Throw this over your shoulders. She refused the mantle as she had the bottle and the cake, and answered, A cloth. "'But,' resumed the kind-hearted Udard, "'you must have seen that yesterday was a holiday.' "'I knew it,' said the recluse. "'For two days I have had no water in my jug.' She added, after a pause, "'On a holiday, everyone forgets me. "'They do well. "'Why should people remember me, who never think of them? "'When the fire goes out, the ashes are soon cold.' And, as if wearied by so many words, she let her head fall upon her knees once more. The simple and charitable Udard, who interpreted her last words as another complaint of the cold, answered innocently, "'Then wouldn't you like a little fire?' "'Fire,' said the recluse in a singular tone. "'And will you give me a little for the poor baby, too? The baby who has been underground these fifteen years?' She trembled in every limb, her voice quivered, her eyes flashed. She had risen to her knees. She suddenly stretched her thin white hand towards the child, who was looking at her in surprise. "'Take away that child,' she cried. "'The gypsy woman will soon pass by.' Then she fell face downwards, and her forehead struck the floor, with the sound of one stone upon another." The three women thought her dead, but a moment later she stirred, and they saw her drag herself upon her hands and knees to the corner where the little shoe lay. They dared not look longer. They turned away their eyes, but they heard a thousand kisses and a thousand sighs, mingled with agonizing cries and dull blows like those of a head dashed against a wall. Then, after one of these blows, so violent that they all three started, they heard nothing more. 
Has she killed herself? said Gervaise, venturing to put her head through the bars. Sister, Sister Gudule. Sister Gudule, repeated Udard. Oh, heavens, she does not move, exclaimed Gervaise. Can she indeed be dead? Gudule, Gudule. Mahiette, until now so choked by emotion that she could not speak, made an effort. Wait a minute, she said. Then going to the window, she cried, Paquette, Paquette Chanfleury. A child who innocently blows on an ill-lighted firecracker and makes it explode in his face is no more alarmed than was Mahiette at the effect of the name so suddenly flung into Sister Gudule's cell. The recluse trembled from head to foot, sprang to her bare feet, and rushed to the window with such flaming eyes that Mahiette, Udard, the other woman, and the child retreated to the farthest end of the quay. But still the forbidding face of the recluse remained pressed against the window bars. Oh, oh, she screamed with a terrible laugh, the gypsy woman calls me. At this instant the scene which was passing at the pillory caught her wild eye. Her brow wrinkled with horror. She stretched her skeleton arms from her cell and cried in a voice which sounded like a death rattle. Have you come again, you daughter of Egypt? Is it you who call me, you child-stealer? Well, may you be accursed, 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 accursed. Chapter 4. A Tear for a Drop of Water these words were, so to speak, the connecting link between two scenes which up to this instant had gone on simultaneously, each upon its own particular stage. One of which we have just read at the rat hole, the other of which we shall now read at the pillory. The former was witnessed only by the three women whose acquaintance the reader has just made. The spectators of the latter consisted of the crowd of people whom we saw some time since gathering in the Place de Greve about the gibbet and the pillory. This crowd, whom the sight of the four officers posted at the four corners of the pillory ever since nine in the morning, led to expect an execution of some sort, perhaps not a hanging, but a whipping, cropping of ears, or something of the sort. This crowd had grown so rapidly that the four officers, too closely hemmed in, were more than once obliged to drive the people back by a free use of their whips and their horses' heels. The populace, well accustomed to wait for public executions, betrayed no great impatience. They amused themselves by looking at the pillory, a very simple structure, consisting of a cube of masonry some ten feet high and hollow within. A very steep flight of stairs of unhewn stone, called the ladder, led to the upper platform, upon which was a horizontal wheel made of oak. The victim was bound to this wheel in a kneeling posture, with his hands behind him. A wooden shaft, set in motion by a capstan, concealed inside the machine, made the wheel revolve horizontally, thus presenting the prisoner's face to each side of the square in turn. This was called turning a criminal. 
it is evident that the pillory of the Place de Greve was far from possessing all the attractions of the pillory of the Hall. There was nothing architectural or monumental about it. It had no roof with an iron cross, no octagonal lantern, no slender columns expanding at the edge of the roof into capitals composed of acanthus leaves and flowers, no huge fantastic gutter spouts, no carved woodwork, no delicate sculpture cut deep into the stone. Here the spectator must needs be content with the four rough walls, two stone facings, and a shabby stone gibbet, plain and bare. The treat would have been a sorry one for lovers of Gothic architecture. It is true that no one was ever less interested in monuments than your good burghers of the Middle Ages, who paid very little heed to the beauty of a pillory. The victim appeared at last, tied to the tail of a cart, and when he had been hoisted to the top of the platform, where he could be seen from all parts of the square, bound to the wheel of the pillory with straps and ropes, a prodigious hooting, mingled with shouts and laughter, burst from the spectators. They had recognized Quasimodo. It was indeed he. It was a strange reverse. He was now pilloried on the same place where he was the day before, hailed, acclaimed, and proclaimed Pope and Prince of Fools, and attended by the Duke of Egypt, the King of Tunis, the Emperor of Galilee. One thing is certain, there was not a soul in the crowd, not even himself, in turn triumphant and a victim, who could distinctly draw a mental comparison between these two situations. Gringoire and his philosophy were lacking at spectacle. Soon Michel Noiret, sworn trumpeter to our lord the king, imposed silence on all beholders, and proclaimed the sentence, according to the provost's order and command. He then retired behind the cart, with his men in livery coats. Quasimodo, utterly impassive, never winked. All resistance on his part was rendered impossible by what was then called, in the language of criminal law, the vehemence and firmness of the bonds, which means that the chains and thongs probably cut into his flesh. This, by the by, is a tradition of the jail and the convict prison which is not yet lost, and which the handcuffs still preserve as a precious relic among us, civilized, mild, and humane as we are, not to mention the guillotine and the galleys. He allowed himself to be led, pushed, carried, lifted, tied, and retied. His face revealed nothing more than the surprise of a savage or an idiot. He was known to be deaf. He seemed to be blind. He was placed upon his knees on the circular plank. He made no resistance. He was stripped of shirt and doublet to the waist. He submitted. He was bound with a fresh system of straps and buckles. He suffered himself to be buckled and bound. Only from time to time he breathed heavily, like a calf whose head hangs dangling from the back of the butcher's cart. "'The blockhead,' said Jean Frollo du Moulin to his friend Robin Pouspin, for the two students had followed the victim as a matter of course. 
He understands no more about it than a cockchafer shut up in a box. A shout of laughter ran through the crowd when Quasimodo's hump, his camel breast, his horny, hairy shoulders were bared to view. During this burst of merriment, a man in the city livery, short of stature and strong, mounted the platform and took his place by the prisoner's side. His name was soon circulated among the spectators. It was Master Pierrot Torteru, sworn torturer of the Chatelet. He began by placing on one corner of the pillory a black hourglass, the upper part of which was full of red sand, which dropped slowly into the lower half. Then he took off his party-colored coat, and there was seen hanging from his right hand a slim, slender whip, with long white tongs, shining, knotted, braided, armed with metal tips. With his left hand he carelessly rolled his right shirt-sleeve up to his armpit. Meanwhile Jean Frollo shouted, lifting his fair curly head high above the crowd. He had climbed Robin Pouspin's shoulders for the express purpose. Come and see, gentlemen and ladies. They are going straightway to flog Master Quasimodo, the bell-ringer of my brother the Archdeacon of Josas, a strange specimen of Oriental architecture, with a dome for his back and twisted columns for legs. All the people laughed, especially the children and the young girls. At last the executioner stamped his foot. The wheel began to turn. Quasimodo reeled in spite of his bonds. The astonishment suddenly depicted upon his misshapen face redoubled the bursts of laughter around him. Suddenly, just as the wheel in its revolution presented to Master Pierrot Quasimodo's mountainous back, Master Pierrot raised his arm. The thin lashes hissed through the air like a brood of vipers, and fell furiously upon the wretched man's shoulders. Quasimodo started, as if roused abruptly from a dream. He began to understand. He writhed in his bonds. Surprise and pain distorted the muscles of his face, but he did not heave a sigh. He merely bent his head back to the right, then to the left, shaking it like a bull stung in the flank by a gadfly. A second blow followed the first, then a third, and another, and another, and so on and on. The wheel did not cease from turning, or the blows from raining down. Soon the blood spurted. It streamed in countless rivulets over the hunchback's swarthy shoulders, and the slender thongs, as they swung in the air, sprinkled it in drops among the crowd. Quasimodo had resumed, apparently at least, his former impassivity. He had tried at first, secretly and without great visible effort, to burst his bonds. His eye kindled, his muscles stiffened, his limbs gathered all their force, and the straps and chains stretched. The struggle was mighty, prodigious, desperate, but the tried and tested fetters of the provosty held firm. They cracked, and that was all. Quasimodo fell back exhausted. Surprise gave way, 
upon his features to a look of bitter and profound dejection. He closed his single eye, dropped his head upon his breast, and feigned death. Thenceforth he did not budge. Nothing could wring a movement from him, neither his blood, which still flowed, nor the blows, which increased in fury, nor the rage of the executioner, who became excited and intoxicated by his work, nor the noise of the horrid lashes, keener and sharper than the stings of wasps. At last an usher from the Chatelet, dressed in black, mounted on a black horse, who had been posted beside the ladder from the beginning of the execution of the sentence, extended his ebony wand towards the hourglass. The executioner paused. The wheel stopped. Quasimodo's eye reopened slowly. The flagellation was ended. Two attendants of the executioner washed the victim's bleeding shoulders, rubbed them with some salve which at once closed all the wounds, and threw over his back a piece of yellow cotton cloth cut after the pattern of a priest's cope. Meanwhile, Pierrot Torteru let his red lashes soaked with blood drip upon the pavement. But all was not over for Quasimodo. He had still to spend in the pillory that hour so judiciously added by Master Florian Barbdien to the sentence of Master Robert de Studeville, all to the greater glory of Jean de Cumin's old physiological and psychological pun, Surdus Absurdus. A deaf man is absurd. The hourglass was therefore turned, and the hunchback was left bound to the plank as before, in order that justice might be executed to the utmost. The people, particularly in the Middle Ages, were to society what the child is to a family. So long as they remain in their primitive condition of ignorance, of moral and intellectual non-age, it may be said of that as of a child, it is an age without pity. We have already shown that Quasimodo was the object of universal hatred. For more than one good reason, it is true. There was hardly a single spectator in the crowd who had not, or did not think he had, grounds for complaint against the malicious hunchback of Notre Dame. Everyone was delighted to see him in the pillory, and the severe punishment which he had just received, and the piteous state in which it had left him, far from softening the hearts of the populace, had made their hatred keener, by adding to it a spice of merriment. Thus, public vengeance, as the legal jargon still styles it, once satisfied, a thousand private spites took their turn at revenge. Here, as in the great hall, the women made themselves especially conspicuous. All bore him a grudge, some for his mischief, others for his ugliness. The latter were the more furious. "'Oh, you image of Antichrist!' said one. "'Broomstick rider!' cried another. "'What a fine, tragic face!' yelled a third. "'It would surely make you the Pope of Fools if today were only yesterday!' That's right, added an old woman. This is the pillory face. When shall we have the gallows face? When shall we see you buried a hundred feet below ground, 
with your big bell upon your head, you cursed bell-ringer. And to think that it's this demon that rings the Angelus. Oh, you deaf man, you blind man, you hunchback, you monster. And the two students, Jean de Moulin and Robin Pouspin, sang at the top of their voices the old popular refrain, A halter for the gallows bird, a faggot for the ugly ape. Countless other insults rained upon him, mingled with hoots, curses, laughter, and occasional stones. Quasimodo was deaf, but his sight was capital, and the fury of the mob was no less forcibly painted on their faces than in their words. Besides, the stones which struck him explained the peals of laughter. He bore it for a time, but little by little his patience, which had resisted the torturer's whip, gave way and rebelled against all these insect stings. The Asturian bull, which pays but little heed to the attacks of the picador, is maddened by the dogs and the banderillos. At first he glanced slowly and threateningly around the crowd, but, bound fast as he was, his glance was impotent to drive away those flies which galled his wounds. Then he struggled in his fetters, and his frantic efforts made the old pillory wheel creak upon its timbers. All this only increased the shouts and derision of the crowd. Then the wretched man, unable to break the collar which held him chained like a wild beast, became quiet again. Only at intervals a sigh of rage heaved his breast. His face showed no trace of mortification or shame. He was too far removed from the existing state of society, and too nearly allied to a state of nature, to know what shame was. Besides, it is doubtful if infamy be a thing which can be felt by one afflicted with that degree of deformity. But rage, hate, despair, slowly veiled the hideous face with a cloud which grew darker and darker, more and more heavily charged with an electricity revealed by countless flashes from the eye of the cyclop. However, this cloud was lightened for a moment as a mule passed through the crowd, bearing a priest on his back. As soon as he saw that mule and that priest, the poor sufferer's face softened. The fury which convulsed it gave way to a strange smile, full of ineffable sweetness, affection, and tenderness. As the priest approached, this smile became more pronounced, more distinct, more radiant. It was as if the unhappy man hailed the coming of a savior. Yet, when the mule was near enough to the pillory for his rider to recognize the prisoner, the priest cast down his eyes, turned back abruptly, spurred his animal on either side as if in haste to avoid humiliating appeals, and very far from anxious to be greeted and recognized by a poor devil in such a plight. The priest was the archdeacon Dom Claude Frollo. The cloud grew darker than ever upon the face of Quasimodo. The smile lingered for some time, although it became bitter, dejected, profoundly sad. 
Time passed. He had been there at least an hour and a half, wounded, ill-treated, incessantly mocked, and almost stoned to death. Suddenly, he again struggled in his chains with renewed despair, which made all the timbers that held him quiver, and breaking the silence which he had hitherto obstinately kept, he cried in a hoarse and furious voice more like the bark of a dog than a human cry, and which drowned the sound of the hooting. Water! This exclamation of distress, far from exciting compassion, only increased the amusement of the good Parisian populace who surrounded the latter, and who, it must be confessed, taken in the mass and as a multitude, were at this time scarcely less cruel and brutish than that horrible tribe of vagrant vagabonds to whom we have already introduced the reader, and who were simply the lowest stratum of the people. Not a voice was raised around the wretched sufferer, except to mock at his thirst. Certainly he was at this moment more grotesque and repulsive than he was pitiable, with his livid and streaming face, his wild eye, his mouth foaming with rage and suffering, and his tongue protruding. It must also be acknowledged that, even had there been in the throng any charitable soul tempted to give a cup of cold water to the miserable creature in his agony, so strong an idea of shame and ignominy was attached to the infamous steps of the pillory that this alone would have sufficed to repel the good Samaritan. In a few minutes, Quasimodo cast a despairing look upon the crowd and repeated in a still more heart-rending voice, Water! Everyone laughed. Drink that, shouted Robin Pouspin, flinging in his face a sponge which had been dragged through the gutter. There, you deaf monster, I owe you something. A woman aimed a stone at his head. That will teach you to wake us at night with your cursed chimes. Well, my boy, howled a cripple, striving to reach him with his crutch. Will you cast spells on us again from the top of the towers of Notre Dame? Here's a porringer to drink out of, added a man, letting fly a broken jug at his breast. "'Twas you who made my wife give birth to a double-headed child, just by walking past her. "'And my cat have a kitten with six feet,' shrieked an old woman, hurling a tile at him. "'Water!' repeated the gasping Quasimodo for the third time. "'At this moment he saw the crowd separate. "'A young girl, oddly dressed, stepped from their midst.' She was accompanied by a little white goat with gilded horns, and held a tambourine in her hand. Quasimodo's eye gleamed. It was the gypsy girl whom he had tried to carry off the night before, a feat for which he dimly felt that he was even now being punished, which was not in the least true, since he was only punished for the misfortune of being deaf and having been tried by a deaf judge. He did not doubt that she too came to be avenged, and to take her turn at him with the rest. He watched her nimbly climb the ladder. Rage and spite choked him. He longed to destroy the pillory, and had the lightning of his eye had power to blast, 
the gypsy girl would have been reduced to ashes long before she reached the platform. Without a word, she approached the sufferer, who vainly writhed and twisted to avoid her, and loosening a gourd from her girdle, she raised it gently to the parched lips of the miserable wretch. Then, from that eye, hitherto so dry and burning, a great tear trickled, and rolled slowly down the misshapen face, so long convulsed with despair. It was perhaps the first that the unfortunate man had ever shed. But he forgot to drink. The gypsy girl made her customary little grimace of impatience, and smilingly pressed the neck of the gourd to Quasimodo's jagged mouth. He drank long draughts. His thirst was ardent. When he had done, the poor wretch put out his black lips, doubtless to kiss the fair hand which had helped him. But the girl, perhaps not quite free from distrust, and mindful of the violent attempt of the previous night, withdrew her hand with the terrified gesture of a child who fears being bitten by a wild animal. Then the poor deaf man fixed upon her a look of reproach and unutterable sorrow. It would anywhere have been a touching sight to see this lovely girl, fresh, pure, charming, and yet so weak, thus devoutly hastening to the help of so much misery, deformity, and malice. Upon a pillory the sight was sublime. The people themselves were affected by it, and began to clap their hands and shout, Noel! Noel! It was at this instant that the recluse saw, from the window of her cell, the gypsy girl upon the pillory, and hurled her ominous curse at her head. "'May you be accursed, daughter of Egypt! Accursed! Accursed!' Chapter 5 End of the Story of the Cake Esmeralda turned pale, and descended from the pillory with faltering steps. The voice of the recluse still pursued her. "'Come down! Come down, you gypsy thief! You will go up again!' The sachet has one of her ill turns today, muttered the people, and they said no more, for women of this sort were held in much awe, which made them sacred. No one liked to attack those who prayed night and day. The hour had come to release Quasimodo. He was unbound, and the mob dispersed. Near the Grand Pont, Mahiette, who was returning home with her two companions, stopped suddenly. "'By the way, Eustache, what have you done with the cake?' "'Mother,' said the child, "'while you were talking to the woman in that hole, "'there came a big dog and bit a piece out of my cake, "'and then I took a bite too.' "'What, sir?' she continued. "'Did you eat it all?' "'Mother, it was the dog. "'I told him not to eat it, but he wouldn't mind me. "'So then I took a bite too, that's all.' "'What a bad boy you are,' said his mother, smiling and scolding at once. "'Only think, Udard, he ate every cherry on the tree in our orchard at Charlerange, "'so his grandfather says that he is sure to be a soldier. "'Let me catch you at it again, Master Eustache. 
Get along, you greedy boy.